Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. designed to help you fall asleep. Find us at snoozecast.com, and if you enjoy our show, please share us with a friend. This episode is brought to you by A Brisk Air of Resolution. Tonight, we'll read the second half to The Adventure of the Crooked Man, one of the 56 Sherlock Holmes short stories written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It is one of 12 stories in the cycle collected as the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. In the first episode, which aired last week, we learn about Colonel Barclay, a man who had risen up to the ranks to become the leader of a squadron. He and his wife enjoyed the power and popularity stemming from such a position. Their standing in the community made the case all the more shocking when Barclay was found dead and Mrs. Barclay was the only one present. She was suspected of murdering him because they had been arguing when he died. We will pick up with Holmes discussing with Watson how he would like to prove Mrs. Barclay's innocence because he thinks there is more to the story. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few said, Once I gathered all the facts, Watson, 
I smoked several pipes over them, trying to separate those which were crucial from others which were merely incidental. There could be no question that the most distinctive and suggestive point in the case was the singular disappearance of the door key. A most careful search had failed to discover it in the room. Therefore, it must have been taken from it. But neither the colonel nor the colonel's wife could have taken it. That was perfectly clear. Therefore, a third person must have entered the room, and that third person could only have come in through the window. It seemed to me that a careful examination of the room and the lawn might possibly reveal some traces of this mysterious individual. You know my methods, Watson. There was not one of them which I did not apply to the inquiry, and it ended up by my discovering traces, but very different ones, from those which I had expected. There had been a man in the room, and he had crossed the lawn coming from the road. I was able to obtain five very clear impressions of his footmarks, one in the roadway itself, at the point where he had climbed the low wall, two on the lawn, and two very faint ones upon the stained boards near the window where he had entered. He had apparently rushed across the lawn, for his toe marks were much deeper than his heels. But it was not the man who surprised me. It was his companion. His companion? Holmes pulled a large sheet of tissue paper out of his pocket and carefully unfolded it upon his knee. What do you make of that? He asked. The paper was covered with the tracings of the footmarks of some small animal. It had five well-marked footpads, an indication of long nails. It's a dog, said I. Did you ever hear of a dog running up a curtain? I found distinct traces that this creature had done so. A monkey then. But it is not the print of a monkey. Well, what can it be then? Neither dog, nor cat, nor monkey, nor any creature that we are familiar with. I have tried to reconstruct it from the measurements. Here are four prints where the beast has been standing motionless. You see that it is no less than 15 inches from four foot to hind. Add to that the length of neck and head, and you get a creature not much less than two feet long. Probably more if there is any tail. But now observe this other measurement. The animal has been moving, and we have the length of its stride. In each case, it is only about three inches. You have an indication, you see, of a long body with very short legs attached to it. It has not been considerate enough to leave any of its hair behind it, but its general shape must be what I have indicated, and it can run up a curtain, and it is carnivorous. How do you deduce that? Because, 
it ran up the curtain. A canary's cage was hanging in the window, and its aim seems to have been to get at the bird. Then what was the beast? Ah, if I could give it a name, it might go a long way towards solving the case. On the whole, it was probably some creature of the weasel and stoat tribe, and yet it is larger than any of these that I have seen. But what had it to do with the crime? That also is still obscure. But we have learned a good deal, you perceive. We know that a man stood in the road looking at the quarrel between the Barclays. The blinds were up and the room was lighted. We know also that he ran across the lawn, entered the room, accompanied by a strange animal, and that he either struck the colonel, or, as is equally possible, that the colonel fell down at the sight of him and cut his head on the corner of the fender. Finally, we have the curious fact that the intruder carried away the key with him when he left. Your discoveries seem to have left the business more obscure than it was before, said I. Quite so. They undoubtedly showed that the affair was much deeper than was at first conjectured. I thought the matter over, and I came to the conclusion that I must approach the case from another aspect. But really, Watson, I am keeping you up and I might just as well tell you all this on our way to Aldershot tomorrow. Thank you. You've gone rather too far to stop. It is quite certain that when Mrs. Barclay left the house at half-past seven, she was on good terms with her husband. She was never, as I think I have said, ostentatiously affectionate but she was heard by the coachman chatting with the colonel in a friendly fashion. Now, it was equally certain that, immediately on her return, she had gone to the room in which she was least likely to see her husband, had flown to tea as an agitated person will, and finally, on his coming into her, had broken into recriminations. Therefore, Something had occurred between 7.30 and 9 o'clock which had completely altered her feelings towards him. But Miss Morrison had been with her during the whole of that hour and a half. It was absolutely certain, therefore, in spite of her denial, that she must know something of the matter. My first conjecture was that possibly there had been some passages between this young lady and the old soldier, which the former had now confessed to the wife, that would account for the angry return, and also for the girl's denial that anything had occurred. Nor would it be entirely incompatible with most of the words overheard. But there was the reference to David, and there was the known affection of the colonel for his wife to weigh against it, to say nothing of the tragic intrusion of this other man, which might, of course, 
be entirely disconnected with what had gone before. It was not easy to pick one step, but on the whole, I was inclined to dismiss the idea that there had been anything between the colonel and Miss Morrison, but more than ever convinced that the young lady held the clue as to what it was which had turned Mrs. Barclay to hatred of her husband. I took the obvious course, therefore, of calling upon Miss Morrison, of explaining to her that I was perfectly certain that she held the facts in her possession, and of assuring her that her friend, Mrs. Barclay, might find herself in the dock upon a capital charge unless the matter were cleared up. Miss Morrison is a little ethereal slip of a girl with timid eyes and blonde hair, but I found her by no means wanting in shrewdness and common sense. She sat thinking for some time after I had spoken, and then, turning to me with a brisk air of resolution, she broke into a remarkable statement, which I will condense for your benefit. I promised my friend that I would say nothing of the matter, and a promise is a promise, said she, but if I can really help her when so serious a charge is laid against her, and when her own mouth, poor darling, is closed by illness, then I think I am absolved from my promise. I will tell you exactly what happened upon Monday evening. We were returning from the Walt Street Mission about a quarter to nine o'clock. On our way, we had to pass through Hudson Street, which is a very quiet thoroughfare. There is only one lamp in it, upon the left-hand side, and as we approached this lamp, I saw a man coming towards us with his back very bent and something like a box slung over one of his shoulders. He appeared to be deformed, for he carried his head low and walked with his knees bent. We were passing him when he raised his face to look at us in the circle of light thrown by the lamp, and as he did so, he stopped and screamed out in a dreadful voice, My God, it's Nancy! Mrs. Barclay turned white and would have fallen down had the dreadful-looking creature not caught hold of her. I was going to call for the police, but she, to my surprise, spoke quite civilly to the fellow. I thought you had been dead this thirty years, Henry, said she, in a shaking voice. So have I, said he, and it was awful to hear the tones that he said it in. He had a gleam in his eyes that comes back to me in my dreams. His hair and whiskers were shot with gray, and his face was all crinkled and puckered like a withered apple. Just walk on a little way, dear, said Mrs. Barclay. I want to have a word with this man. There is nothing to be afraid of. She tried to speak boldly, but she was still pale and could hardly get her words out for the trembling of her lips. I did as she asked me, and they talked together for a few minutes. 
Then she came down the street with her eyes blazing, and I saw the wretch standing by the lamppost and shaking his clenched fists in the air as if he were mad with rage. She never said a word until we were at the door here, when she took me by the hand and begged me to tell no one what had happened. It's an old acquaintance of mine who has come down in the world, said she. When I promised her I would say nothing, she kissed me, and I have never seen her since. I have told you now the whole truth, and if I withheld it from the police, it is because I did not realize then the danger in which my dear friend stood. I know that it can only be to her advantage that everything should be known. There was her statement, Watson, and to me, as you can imagine, it was like a light on a dark night. Everything which had been disconnected before began at once to assume its true place, and I had a shadowy presentiment of the whole sequence of events. My next step, obviously, was to find the man who had produced such a remarkable impression upon Mrs. Barclay. If he were still in all their shot, it would not be a very difficult matter. There are not such a very great number of civilians, and a deformed man was sure to have attracted attention. I spent a day in the search, and by evening, this very evening, Watson, I had run him down. The man's name is Henry Wood, and he lives in lodgings in this same street in which the ladies met him. He has only been five days in the place. In the character of a registration agent, I had a most interesting gossip with his landlady. The man is by trade a conjurer and a performer, going round the canteens after nightfall and giving a little entertainment at each. He carries some creature about with him in that box, about which the landlady seemed to be in considerable trepidation, for she had never seen an animal like it. He uses it in some of his tricks according to her account. So much the woman was able to tell me, and also that it was a wonder the man lived, seeing how twisted he was and that he spoke in a strange tongue sometimes, and that for the last two nights she had heard him groaning and weeping in his bedroom. He was all right, as far as money went, but in his deposit he had given her what looked like a bad florin. She showed it to me, Watson, and it was an Indian rupee. So now, my dear fellow, you see exactly how we stand, and why it is I want you. It is perfectly plain that after the ladies parted from this man he followed them at a distance, that he saw the quarrel between husband and wife through the window, that he rushed in, and that the creature which he carried in his box got loose. That is all very certain but he's the only person in this world who can tell us exactly what happened in that room. And you intend to ask him? Most certainly. But in the presence of a witness. 
and I am that witness, if you will be so good, he can clear the matter up. If he refuses, we have no alternative but to apply for a warrant. But how do you know he'll be there when we return? You may be sure that I took some precautions. I have one of my Baker Street boys mounting guard over him, who would stick to him like a burr, go where he might. We shall find him in Hudson Street tomorrow, Watson, and meanwhile, I should be the criminal myself if I kept you out of bed any longer. It was midday when we found ourselves at the scene of the tragedy, and under my companion's guidance, we made our way at once to Hudson Street in spite of his capacity for concealing his emotions, I could easily see that Holmes was in a state of suppressed excitement, while I was myself tingling with that half-sporting, half-intellectual pleasure which I invariably experienced when I associated myself with him in his investigations. This is the street, said he, as we turned into a short thoroughfare lined with plain two-storied brick houses. Ah, here is Simpson to report. He's in all right, Mr. Holmes. Good, Simpson, said Holmes, patting him on the head. Come along, Watson. This is the house. He sent in his card with a message that he had come on important business, and a moment later we were face to face with the man whom we had come to see. In spite of the warm weather, he was crouching over a fire, and the little room was like an oven. The man sat all twisted and huddled in his chair, in a way which gave an indescribable impression of deformity. But the face, which he turned towards us, though worn and dirty, must at some time have been remarkable for its beauty. He looked suspiciously at us now, out of yellow-shot, bilious eyes, and without speaking or rising, he waved towards two chairs. Mr. Henry Wood, late of India, I believe, said Holmes, affably. I've come over this little matter of Colonel Barclay's death. What should I know about that? That's what I want to ascertain, you know, I suppose, that unless the matter is cleared up, Mrs. Barclay, who is an old friend of yours, will in all probability be tried for murder. The man gave a start. I don't know who you are, he cried nor how you came to know what you do know. But will you swear that this is true that you tell me? Why, they are only waiting for her to come to her senses to arrest her. My God, are you in the police yourself? No. What business is it of yours, then? It is every man's business to see justice done. You can take my word that she is innocent. Then you are guilty. No. I am not. 
Who killed Colonel James Barclay then? It was a just providence that killed him. But mind you this, that if I had knocked his brains out, as it was in my heart to do, he would have had no more than his due from my hands if his own guilty conscience had not struck him down. It is likely enough that I might have had his blood upon my soul. You want me to tell the story? Well, I don't know why I shouldn't, for there's no cause for me to be ashamed of it. It was in this way, sir. You see me now with my back like a camel, and my ribs all awry. But there was a time when Corporal Henry Wood was the smartest man in the 117th foot. We were in India then, at a place we called Bertie. Barclay, who died the other day, was sergeant in the same company as myself, and the belle of the regiment, I, and the finest girl that ever had the breath of life between her lips was Nancy DeVoy, the daughter of the color sergeant. There were two men that loved her, and one that she loved, and you'll smile when you look at this poor thing huddled before the fire and hear me say that it was for my good looks that she loved me. Well, though I had her heart, her father was set upon marrying Barclay. I was a reckless lad, and he had an education, and was already marked for the sword belt. But the girl held true to me, and it seemed that I would have had her when the mutiny broke out. We were shut up in Bertie. The regiment of us with half a battery of artillery, a company of Sikhs, and a lot of civilians and women folk. There were 10,000 rebels around us, and they were as keen as a set of terriers round a rat cage. About the second week of it, our water gave out, and it was a question whether we could communicate with General Neal's column, which was moving up country. It was our only chance, for we could not hope to fight our way out with all the women and children. So I volunteered to go out and to warn General Neal of our danger. My offer was accepted and I talked it over with Sergeant Barclay, who was supposed to know the ground better than any other man, and who drew up a route by which I might get through the rebel lines. At ten o'clock, the same night, I started off upon my journey. There were a thousand lives to save, but it was of only one that I was thinking when I dropped over the wall that night. My way ran down a dried-up watercourse, which we hoped would screen me from the enemy's sentries, but as I crept round the corner of it, I walked right into six of them, who were crouching down in the dark waiting for me. In an instant, I was stunned with a blow and bound hand and foot 
But the real blow was to my heart, and not to my head. For as I came to and listened to as much as I could understand, I heard enough to tell me that my comrade, the very man who had arranged the way that I was to take, had betrayed me by means of a native servant into the hands of the enemy. Well, there's no need for me to dwell on that part of it. You now know what James Barclay was capable of. Bertie was relieved by Neil next day, but the rebels took me away with them in their retreat, and it was many a long year before ever I saw an English face again. I tried to get away and was captured again. You can see for yourselves the state in which I was left. Some of them that fled into Nepal took me with them. And then afterwards, I was up past Darjeeling. The hill folk up there battled the rebels who had me. And I became their slave for a time until I escaped. But instead of going south, I had to go north until I found myself among the Afghans. There I wandered about for many a year, and at last came back to Punjab, where I lived mostly among the natives and picked up a living by the conjuring tricks that I had learned. What use was it for me, a wretched cripple, to go back to England or to make myself known to my old comrades? Even my wish for revenge would not make me do that. I had rather that Nancy and my old pals would think of Harry Wood as having died with a straight back than see him living and crawling with a stick like a chimpanzee. They never doubted that I was dead, and I meant that they never should. I heard that Barclay had married Nancy and that he was rising rapidly in the regiment, but even that did not make me speak. But when one gets old, one has a longing for home. For years I've been dreaming of the bright green fields and the hedges of England. At last I determined to see them before I died. I saved enough to bring me across, and then I came here, where the soldiers are, for I know their ways and how to amuse them, and so earn enough to keep me. Your narrative is most interesting, said Sherlock Holmes. I have already heard of your meeting with Mrs. Barclay and your mutual recognition. You then, as I understand, followed her home and saw through the window an altercation between her husband and her, in which she doubtless cast his conduct to you in his teeth. Your own feelings overcame you, and you ran across the lawn and broke in upon them. I did, sir, and at the sight of me, he looked as I have never seen a man look before, and over he went with his head on the fender, but he was dead before he fell. I read death on his face as plain as I can read that text over the fire. The bare sight of me was like a bullet through his guilty heart. And then? Then Nancy fainted and I caught up the key of the door from her hand 
intending to unlock it and get help. But as I was doing it, it seemed better to leave it alone and get away, for the thing might look against me. And anyway, my secret would be out if I were taken. In my haste, I thrust the key into my pocket and dropped my stick while I was chasing Teddy, who had run up the curtain. When I got him into his box, for which he had slipped, I was off as fast as I could run. Who's Teddy? asked Holmes. The man leaned over and pulled up the front of a kind of hutch in the corner. In an instant, out, there slipped a beautiful reddish-brown creature, thin and lithe, with the legs of a stoat, a long thin nose, and a pair of the finest red eyes that ever I saw in an animal's head. It's a mongoose, I cried. Well, some call them that, and some call them other things said the man. Snake catcher is what I call them, and Teddy is amazing quick on cobras. I have one here without the fangs, and Teddy catches it every night to please the folk in the canteen. Any other point, sir? Well, we may have to apply to you again if Mrs. Barclay should prove to be in serious trouble. In that case, of course, I'd come forward. But if not, there is no object in raking up this scandal against a dead man, foully as he has acted. You have at least the satisfaction of knowing that for thirty years of his life, his conscience bitterly reproached him for this wicked deed. Ah, there goes Major Murphy on the other side of the street. Goodbye, Wood. I want to learn if anything has happened since yesterday. We were in time to overtake the Major before he reached the corner. Ah, Holmes, he said. I suppose you have heard that all this fuss has come to nothing. What then? The inquest is just over. The medical evidence showed conclusively that death was due to apoplexy. You see, it was quite a simple case after all. Huh. Remarkably superficial, said Holmes, smiling. Come, Watson. I don't think we shall be wanted in Aldershot anymore. There's one other thing, said I, as we walked down to the station. If the husband's name was James and the other was Henry... What was this talk about David? That one word, my dear Watson, should have told me the whole story had I been the ideal reasoner which you are so fond of depicting. It was evidently a term of reproach. Of reproach? Yes. David strayed a little occasionally, you know. And on one occasion, in the same direction, 
as Sergeant James Barclay. You remember the small affair of Uriah and Bathsheba? My biblical knowledge is a trifle rusty, I fear. But you will find the story in the first or second of Samuel.